When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. This episode, I'm going to talk about what a lot of bosses and managers don't realize, and it's causing them to lose employees or make the ones they keep really not very happy. Later, There's so much going on where we live with rent prices, home prices, mortgage rates. I'm going to talk about the latest news on the housing front and what you can expect moving forward. So speaking about moving forward, employers are trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do in office-type environments that account for roughly a third of workers in the United States. And if you go back to the spring of last year, I kept talking about how people who worked in offices were generally the luckiest in the unlucky circumstance of COVID in that they were able to keep working as before, but from home and and places adjusted and all that. But there is a big, big genie that's been let out of a bottle. People have gotten used to not having to commute, at least not five days a week, even though they go in what they call the hybrid kind of environment. And people really have learned to like it. Bosses, on the other hand, not so much. And I saw an item in the Biz Journal's publication. They publish Uh, business newspapers around the United States, that nearly half of executives want their people at work, again, five days a week. Now, what about employees? What do they want? Almost none of them want to be at work five days a week. It was in the teens, the percent, meaning that 80-something percent of people who are non-executives, they're like done with the five-day-of-work thing. And I know there's this thing where executives believe that people have been loafing who've been working at home. Okay, one clue you in, most of these executives are old like me, and, oh, I am, I'm 66. You're not old. You're going to tell me 66 is not old. No, age is just a number, man. It's old. Anyway. (laughs) You're all for people working from home and having flexibility. Absolutely. But not, remember, it wasn't every boss that was like that. Half of them Mm. got a clue. But the other half that are clueless have this idea that if people are working from home, that they're using it as an excuse to half-step it, to not really do their work. And that old, stale, 
attitude has got to change because those workers, if you put your thumb on them and you say, you are coming back in five days a week, they're gone. They're gone. The quit rate is the highest it's ever been since that term existed and those stats were kept. People have the power now when you treat them like dirt. And let me tell you something. When you say to people who've gotten used to not having to commute five days a week, particularly if they live urban, suburban, and they're having a nasty commute, when they've gotten used to not having to do that five days a week and you tell them they got to, then they got to go find a new job because they want nothing to do with you. That whole authoritarian thing with management that's common with people my age, I'm sorry, it's true, is ridiculous. So three-quarters of the executives say they want to be in the office all the time, workers, no way. And here's the best part. Two-thirds of executives have been making their companies post-plans, post-meaning, post-COVID, whenever that is, without any input at all from their employees. So I got something else I got to clue you in on if you're an executive at a company, corporation, whatever, that does not work with people under 40. You know, these terms that the consultants throw out, like collaborative workplace, I know it sounds like a bunch of psychobabble mumbo-jumbo to you. Let me tell you, you want productivity out of your workers who are under 40? If they feel like they're in an authoritarian kind of workplace, then they're not going to stay. They're just not. So what's your goal with your company? It's to provide a product or service to people and make a profit doing it. And having an unstable workforce takes that away from you. So why don't you get to meet some of your underlings and find out what's really making them tick and what they want and give them what they want? Because... What percent of people are open to looking for a new job in the next year? 57%. With those who feel like they're not getting enough flexibility from their boss, it jumps to over 70%. 70%. For you as an employee, an underling, working for that executive who doesn't know who you are or cares what you think, know that you have power right now in the job marketplace. And if you got a boss who doesn't value your opinion and what has worked for you and what's worked in your life, take your skills and experience elsewhere. And maybe at some point, that boss will learn what it takes to run a successful company, you listen to your people. We've got to some questions now. This is from Lisa in Utah. I was wondering about Venmo's recent ID verification request and requirement. 
Do I have to provide it? And can I continue to use their service without providing it? Okay, so this is about the problems that have been going on with people's uh, Venmo accounts being hacked. And I don't know, Lisa, that it will uh, shut you down, but it does mean that you won't be able to carry a, a balance in your Venmo app. So Venmo says they're required to collect information from you if you're running a balance with them. And so you can still receive payments and you can transfer it out to a bank account. You can still make payments using outside sources. You just won't be able to use money in your Venmo account unless you complete the ID verification requirements. So this is kind of the equivalent of what happens at a bank, brokerage, or credit union where they have to verify your identity, and that's the same thing that Venmo is. They are doing bank-like things is now being forced to do. This is from Akshay in North Carolina. My wife was in an auto accident. Her car was T-boned by a van. She is doing okay, but our car was totaled. I'm really sorry. Do you have any advice for purchasing a decent used or new family car during this crazy market? (sighs) This is a brutal time to be in a position uh, following an accident to have to replace a vehicle because the cost of vehicles is so very high. And the thing people have been doing, and this is not a direct answer to your question, but I'll tell you what people have been doing, is normally people focus when they're looking for a new vehicle at one brand, maybe two. This cycle in the vehicle market means you really need to widen your search. And I think Consumer Reports is your absolute best friend for widening your search for a vehicle by seeing what brands they found to, that they recommend and they've found to be very, very reliable that would expand the list of brands that you will consider. And then you can start shopping the market to see what's available in those, what kind of prices you're going to have to pay. I shared an experience a while ago where two friends both bought um, Hyundai Sonatas eight months apart, similarly equipped. The second one, the one who bought eight months later, had to pay $7,000 more for that Sonata than the friend who bought earlier just because the market is short enough a product that it has driven up the prices. So expanding the vehicles you'll consider and looking at brands you may not have considered is the best advice I have at a time where you cannot delay. You have to replace the vehicle, whether you're replacing it new or used. The best news, though, is I'm glad that your wife is doing okay. And from Daniel in Florida, Clark, you have to help me out here. I listen to your show all the time and I'm always wondering where and what you're traveling for. You're a consumer advocate and money expert and I can't figure out why you're running around the country and what you're doing. 
(laughs) (laughs) I am travel obsessed. And so I used to travel a lot when I did a syndicated radio show. And I would go visit what we call, do market visits every spring and fall during the key ratings periods. And then I traveled intensely during book tours. I don't write books anymore. I wrote 10. And uh, the funny thing when I'd be on book tour is Krista and two other producers would split up the book tour because it was so exhausting. Mm -hmm. They would rotate in and out on the tour. I was the only one who had to be on the road for uh, one particular tour when I had a book that I was fortunate, went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I was on the road 10 months because the book just kept selling and selling and selling and selling. And today, the great news is all this travel that I got to do is mostly, I'd say probably three quarters of it is for fun now. And that's the best. I still think you have another book in you and you can do it virtually now. I think, I think we need another book. 10 was plenty. Okay. You know, I, I was so fortunate. If you think Clark should write a book, write into us. <laughs> About what? Clark.com Clark. Clark. slash Clark stinks for no. not wanting to write another book. I think for people just getting out of college, like a basics for today's world. You know, we have such dynamic information available at Clark.com that gets updated all the time. And you think about the books I wrote over the years, they become so dated so quickly. Like, I wouldn't tell anybody to buy any of the books I've written in the past. That's why we need a new one. Okay, anyway, <laughs> go ahead. So, I, I, I'm, I'm done. Ten is enough. And I was very fortunate that I wrote content that people found valuable, but I think what we do now is more valuable and more dynamic. Just how I'm feeling. Coming up next, your number one expense for almost all of us is the roof over your head. And I want to cover the latest developments and how they're affecting your wallet now and moving forward. This has been the greatest time to be an owner of real estate selling a property. It has been a nightmare for people attempting to buy a place to live. Whether it's a new home or you buy a used home, it's been really, really hard. Average price of homes around the country, it varies by market, but it's been pretty common. They've gone up mid-teens around the country over the last year. And if you look back to the bottom of the real estate bust in 2012, and you look what's happened over the last nine years, it's stunning how much the cost of housing has gone up. And apartment rents up 10% over the last 18 months. Apartment rents, you know, we went through a cycle where apartment rents declined last year. And now that has all the way come back up. And we're looking at an increase in apartment rents, not as high as what we've had with housing prices, but still bad, ugly 
when people go to renew and their rent suddenly is quite a bit higher than their last lease. The uh, market on Wall Street for buying and selling apartment complexes has found that what buyers are willing to pay has gone way up on apartment complexes of various grades. You know, apartments are graded based on their quality, their age, and what kind of average rents they have. And throughout the apartment market, we're seeing these increases. Now, this is a big reversal from what I was talking about the second half of the teens, you know, last the end of last decade, where there was massive apartment construction around the country and apartment rents were softening in a lot of markets in the United States. All these trends have reversed. And a lot of it is because of something I've talked about in the past. That's the extreme shortage of inventory of dwelling units in the United States. That we are perhaps 10 million housing units short. And this all goes back to the banking scandals that came to a head in 2007 and 8, led to the Great Recession, led to the housing bust, so many builders going out of business. And we've never gotten back to building the number of homes needed in the United States. Now, what is going to happen moving forward is eventually the market will find the inventory it needs. And that happens a couple of ways. Prices get to a point where they run past people's affordability and people buy or rent smaller places or less desirable. They double up. You know, people might not have had a roommate, decide to get a roommate. And at the other side of it, the supply side, people innovate. They build more housing. They build housing uh, smarter ways. They think of all the experimenting I've talked about around the country with 3D printed homes, with taking these um, shipping containers and turning them into housing. That there's a number of opportunities available, including uh, buildings that are built in factories and assembled on site, uh, like so many hotels now in the United States and apartments are built in a factory on an assembly line at a cost typically 30% lower, 50% faster, and they're able to build them on site. So we are in a position in many places in the country where we're now in a stalemate. We're at a point where more and more buyers are on buyer's strike. Not like an organized strike of a union or something like that, but they look what's out there, they see the prices, they see right now we've got mortgage rates that seem to be rising. And they're like, you know what? This is too hot for me. I've got to go on the sidelines. And all these factors will lead to the correction in pricing. And it will not be, I'm starting to see more things from that are getting media coverage from people saying, the next housing bust is around the corner. This housing bust is going to make the last one seem like small potatoes. Or I mean, they use different terminology, but you get the idea. We are not going to see a brutal housing bust in the United States. 
it is not going to happen. But we're also not going to see prices continue to way outstrip people's incomes. And so the market will gradually get to a new equilibrium. And I'm thinking that we're looking probably two years out before the market feels more normal and more stable. But we will get there because raw, simple economics are going to get it done. So that brings me to the most important question that I'm asked every single week. By I'll be stopped by an individual or a couple when I'm out walking our little dog, and they'll ask me about, you know, they're nervous. Should they be buying a house? Should they not be? And I go through a, a whole series of questions with an individual or a couple that ask me about should they go ahead and buy. And my answer, I bet you know, Krista, what is the answer that emerges so often when I'm talking with an individual or couple about buying a home? If you're planning on staying for 10 years or more. Exactly. That is the key right now is the cycle of ownership. If you can handle the payment on what you're looking at, and you are willing to own it a decade or longer, then you don't have to worry so much about what's happened with the housing market in the rearview mirror, and you'll be okay going forward. Melinda in Minnesota has a question. How old is too old to take out a mortgage? My 86-year-old widowed mother would like to buy a townhome, but does not want to sell her home until she is settled in three to six months. It's paid off and worth about 225000 She has liquid assets of about 200000 She would need an additional 50000 in closing costs. She has a monthly retirement income that more than covers her expenses. Well, Melinda, your widowed mother buying a place at 86 is a lifestyle choice because from a strictly financial standpoint, it would make more sense for her to rent moving forward than to buy a place. But if she wants to buy a place, she's going to have meaningful closing costs on the money that she would have to borrow. So if you're talking about being able to sell her home, that I'm guessing she owns the current one free and clear, yeah, it says she does. Yeah. As an alternative, what I would do is I would take out at extremely low cost a home equity line of credit on the existing home. It would be short-term money. It would have floating rate but would not have the normal hassles or closing costs that would be involved in taking out a mortgage for a short period of time on the townhome. And she'd be able to easily come up with based on, oh, you said, yeah, it's paid off. The $225,000, she would easily be able to borrow what she needed on a home equity line of credit to use that plus the resources she has to buy the other place. When she sells the home she has, she would easily be able to pay off the home equity line and she would own the new townhome free and clear. 
Okay, Clark, this question's from Bert in New Hampshire. My wife and I have variable annuity life policies, which we purchased in the down market of 2008. The cash value has grown extremely well. The agent who sold us the policy says we should now consider changing to a new whole life policy using the IRS 1035 rule to avoid taxes. They want us to transfer the entire cash value to the whole life policy. We are currently past the surrender charges timeframe on our current variable policies, and the new policy would subject us to surrender charges again if we had to pull money out in the early years. We're both 58 years old and in good health. Our question is, what are we missing? I do not see an issue with keeping the current policies, and I'm not sure this is a, there's a good reason to move to whole life. So, great question. So, the idea of the variable annuity that you have is that you cannot lose money beyond what you put into it, but you've had a, a lot of money gain in the variable annuity with the run-up in the stock market from its bottom in 2009 till now. So you don't know if, and this is the hard part, is the agent trying to generate a new commission stream, now no longer earning commissions, on the variable annuity sold to you. And that is thinking not the best, possibly, of that individual. And what I would like for you to do is I'd like you to go to a fee-only financial planner. They will want some information. They'll want the contract on the variable annuities. And they will be able to advise you if you're best off keeping those or if there is a valid reason to do a conversion into through a 1035 tax-free exchange into another form of insurance like a whole life policy. Um, You're 58. You're younger than the point at which you'd want to have an annuitization done of these variable annuities likely where they would turn into a predictable lifetime stream of income. So that's why I want you to go talk to a fee-only financial planner who's a fiduciary and will be well worth the money you have to pay him or her on an hourly basis to tell you what you need to know about this variable annuity. I've got on Clark.com a guide to how to find a fee-only fiduciary And that's what I would do. And from Thomas in Colorado, where is the best place to buy euros when traveling in Greece? Thomas, what you want to do before you go is if you have an ATM card from an institution that lets you withdraw funds from ATMs fee-free, you want to do that because that will get you the wholesale banker's buying rate on getting euros. Uh, On the other hand, If you're with a financial institution that charges high ATM charges, that can be self-defeating. If you have time before you go, you could open or you may already have an account at Charles Schwab or at any of a number of the online banks that allow you a certain number of withdrawals each month from ATMs worldwide fee-free. Also, in Greece, many places you go, you're going to find the most efficient way to to purchase things is not in euros, but instead using your credit card. Always have credit card charges cleared 
in euros when you're in Europe, never when they'll try to get you to clear them in dollars. And that's a trick that is common in Europe where you're ripped off on clearing a credit card charge in dollars where you're charged a big exchange fee rather than having a post in euros and then your own credit card company post the charge in dollars. And many credit cards now charge no foreign currency transaction fee when you use a card overseas. I know that was a lot to throw at you all at once, Thomas, on it. Have a great, great time in Greece. And I want to thank you for joining us. Please visit Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com for more money-saving advice you can trust.